Hello and welcome to The Adventures of Paul Temple from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. Steve and Temple drank in the fresh air greedily. Both felt glad to be outside again. As they walked slowly over to the car, neither of them spoke. Both seemed to have far too much to think about. Paul Temple folded a rug over Steve's knees, made sure she was comfortable, then pressed the self-starter. After two or three turns, the engine was firing and he slipped the gear lever into position. A few moments later, they were shooting down the drive towards the main road, which would take them back to Bramley Lodge. After a mile or so, Paul Temple suddenly came to a standstill beside the road and switched off his headlamps. Steve looked round at him in surprise. Why have you stopped? she asked. Because I want to have a chat with you, young lady, he replied. Oh, Mr Temple, said Steve flippantly and with a laugh. Steve, he said very soberly, I'm worried. Worried? She echoed, now serious again. Why? I'm worried because you're mixed up in this affair. These people are dangerous. They'll stop at nothing. You've got to watch yourself, Steve. You've got to... got to watch yourself. Don't worry. I will, she said reassuringly. You're very sweet, she added gently. Ever since that incident in your flat with the record, I've been very anxious for you. There was urgency in Temple's voice. Can't you go away for a little while, Steve? Perhaps, uh, no, she replied decisively. No. And even if I could, I shouldn't. This is my affair, Paul. My affair more than anyone else's. The knave of diamonds killed my brother, remember? Her knuckles were clenched and Temple noticed the row of white spots where the bones were forced against the skin. Her lips were pressed firmly together. Paul Temple realised that his passenger could be a very determined little person when she chose... But, Steve, but that isn't everything, she continued firmly. The whole affair is much deeper than that, Paul, much deeper. For a few moments, she sat in silence, her face set in a deep frown. From the very beginning of the Cape Town, Simonstown robberies eight years ago, she continued thoughtfully, I knew and hated the name of Max Lorraine. I knew that sooner or later I should have to face him. Please believe me, Paul, when I say... Again, Temple interrupted her. Steve, listen, he said suddenly. We agreed that it would be Paul Temple versus Max Lorraine. You heard them talking in that room at the inn, and you know the type of people we're up against. He paused expressively. Steve, for my sake, you've got to keep out of this. But Paul... He refused to let her say what she wanted. I shall make a point of saying Sir Graham first thing tomorrow morning, he said. The inn must be raided on Thursday at all cost. Suddenly he changed the subject. Steve, there's something I've been wanting to ask you. Well? There was something in the tone of his voice that had aroused her curiosity. You remember you told me that when your brother was investigating the Cape Town, Simonstown robberies, he worked with another officer, a man who was later murdered by Max Lorraine. Yes, she answered. Yes, that's right. Tell me, what did they call that man? Steve tried to recall the name of the man to mind. Bellman, she exclaimed at length. Sidney Bellman. Then after a pause, she said, Why do you ask? I was just wondering, said Paul Temple quietly. I was just wondering... Chapter 18. The Commissioner's Orders It was with some sense of satisfaction that Paul Temple mounted the steps which would take him into the hall at Scotland Yard. On the occasion of his visit there with Steve Trent a few days ago, the first he had paid since his newspaper days, he had felt remarkably like a guilty schoolboy being hauled before his headmaster for cheating. But now he had something definite to report to the Commissioner. Indeed, Temple had hoped that his story would make Sir Graham feel glad that he had invited the novelist to cooperate. Even the stolid policeman at the entrance seemed more friendly and greeted him with a cheery, Good morning, Mr Temple, as he pushed his way through the glass doors. 
It was clear that Paul Temple was expected. He had driven down from Bramley Lodge early that morning, and as he had started long before the roads had become cluttered with their more normal traffic, he had made excellent progress. After a light breakfast, he had stepped into the car just before eight o'clock. There were no large towns to pass through, and the needle of the speedometer frequently wavered between sixty and seventy. The car's brakes were good, and Temple was a competent driver. At a quarter to nine, he was skirting Oxford along the bypass, and by ten o'clock, he had reached the Western Avenue and was passing Ealing. Here he stopped to telephone Scotland Yard and make an appointment with the commissioner. He was due to meet Sir Graham at twelve, and this gave him time to visit his club and glance through the morning papers before driving over to Whitehall. The policeman on duty had escorted him to the table where Paul Temple had duly filled up the inquiry slip, without which not even the most exalted visitor seems permitted to leave the portals of Scotland Yard. He had then telephoned the commissioner to make sure he was disengaged. After which. He led the way up the broad flight of stairs to the commissioner's office on the first floor. Sir Graham had a warm welcome for him. The urgent telephone call of a few hours before had certainly surprised him, and he was now more than anxious to hear what had brought Paul Temple to town so early. Temple commenced his story. He gave a full account of his adventure in the passage at Ashdown House on the previous evening, and of Alec Rice's visit. Sir Graham Forbes did not conceal his interest as he listened to the story of the lift. And the thrilling exploits which Steve Trent and Paul Temple had shared. By gosh, he said at last, it was a lucky chance that Miss Trent touched the statue. He paused. You say this passage runs from the doctor's house into the actual inn itself. Yes, Sir Graham. The commissioner grunted. Do you think this passage is a recent innovation, or、uh, no? It's been there for donkeys of years. Must have been. I dare say it was used by smugglers originally as a sort of、uh, storing house. Why, some of these old English inns have.、Uh, Paul Temple broke off. "What is it?" asked the commissioner. "I wonder if Miss Parchment knew that there was a definite connection between the doctor's house and the little general," said the novelist quietly. "Miss Parchment." Sir Graham Forbes looked puzzled. Then suddenly he remembered. "Oh, the retired schoolmistress. Good heavens! Why should she know anything about it?" he asked with a laugh. "I、uh, just wondered. That's all." Temple occasionally liked to surround himself with an air of mystery. Certainly, he never went out of his way to enlighten people as to his thoughts. You know," continued the commissioner, dismissing Miss Parchment from his mind. "The thing that beats me, Temple, is how this fellow, the、uh, knave of diamonds, discovered that the Trenchman affair was a trap." Well," Temple replied quietly, "the answer to that is quite simple, Sir Graham." The commissioner looked up in surprise. "Quite simple," he repeated. "The knave is here," said Temple slowly. He knows all our plans and everything about us. Sir Graham Forbes jumped up from his chair and stood looking down at his visitor. "Good God, Temple!" he exclaimed with amazement. "Are you suggesting?" Paul Temple interrupted him. "I am suggesting nothing, Sir Graham. That the facts themselves do not indicate," he said firmly. "Skid Tyler was murdered, remember, here in this very office because he was on the point of divulging the identity of the Knave of Diamonds." Sir Graham Forbes was silent. He walked up and down the room for a few moments, then stopped near his desk and lit another of his cigarettes. Yes, he said at last. Yes, you're right, Temple. He paused again. Then who is this knave? I don't know, was the answer. But I may have a pretty good idea within twenty-four hours. There was a quiet certainty in Temple's voice. Within twenty-four hours, echoed the commissioner, puzzled by Temple's words. There's a meeting to be held at the Little General tomorrow night at nine. And、the knave will be there. Then、uh, I want about half a dozen of your men to surround the place," said Temple quickly. 
If anyone attempts to leave, have them picked up, but no one must be stopped from entering the inn. Do you understand? The commissioner nodded in agreement. And the doctor's house? He asked. Exactly the same precautions must be taken. At about 9.15, the men watching the house will close in on it, force an entrance, and come down the underground passage to the inn. Is that clear? Sir Graham Forbes did not take offence at Temple's authoritative instructions. Both were obviously carried away by the excitement of the moment. Meanwhile, the novelist continued, at 9.15, the men watching the inn follow exactly the same procedure, close in on the little general and force an entrance. At that moment, a knock sounded on the door, and Chief Inspector Dale appeared. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. He stopped. I thought, uh... That's all right, Dale. The Commissioner hastened to reassure him. Tell Davis of the flying squad I want a word with him. Very good, sir. I should have your men planted at about eight, Sir Graham. Paul Temple continued as the door closed. And then, don't worry, Temple. I'll see to that, all right. The Commissioner walked over to the fireplace and flicked the ash off his cigarette. It might be a good idea if I came down myself, he suggested. The two of us could join the men at the little general, and then, uh, the novelist nodded. Excellent idea, Sir Graham. By gosh, exclaimed the commissioner, finding difficulty in restraining himself. We've got him. We've got him this time. Paul Temple smiled. I wonder, Sir Graham, he said. I wonder. Chapter 19. Steve Vanishes. It was shortly after eight o'clock the following evening. Sir Graham Forbes, Chief Inspector Dale and Paul Temple were standing in the room at Bramley Lodge. All three were smoking, novelist, his customary pipe, the two police chiefs, cigarettes. Both kept flicking their ash nervously into the grate and into the ashtrays that lay scattered over the room. There was an air of expectancy, a feeling that something decisive and unexpected was going to happen. The last remaining details of their plan were under discussion. Are the men armed, Sir Graham? Paul Temple asked. Some of them are, I believe, aren't they, Dale? He asked, turning to the inspector who had arranged the practical details of the plan. Are the men watching the house have service revolvers, sir? Dale explained. I thought under the circumstances that, uh, yes, of course. You understand about the statue, don't you, inspector? Paul Temple suddenly asked him. Uh, yes, I think so, sir, he replied. It's on the left, you say, as soon as you enter the lounge. Yes, that's right. The head of the statue is on a sort of base. As soon as you turn it, you'll see the panel in the wall. I told you about the light, didn't I? Dale nodded. Good, said Temple. As far as I could gather, the lift works automatically. Immediately you close the panel, you'll hear the machinery. I see. I think someone ought to be left behind in the house, Sir Graham interrupted. I should leave Smith, Hodges and Mowbray, Dale. We'll pick them up later. Very good, sir. For a few minutes, no one spoke. Each seemed occupied in turning over in his own mind the events that were shortly to occur at the inn. By the way, remarked the Commissioner suddenly, you have the search warrant. Oh, yes, sir. Good. Sir Graham turned to his host. Well, I think that's about all, isn't it, Temple? The novelist nodded. We shall be waiting for you at the Little General, Dale, he said. Good luck. Thank you, sir. And be careful in that passage, the Commissioner added. I expect the devils know the place backwards. As the inspector walked out of the drawing room, both men watched him and speculated as to what would happen before they met again. Dale seems a nice fellow. Temple remarked at last. Yes, Sir Graham replied. A bit reserved, but very efficient. He's only been at the yard about twelve months. The commissioner walked over to one of the inviting armchairs and sat down. Temple remained perched on the arm of one of the smaller chairs. What time is it exactly? asked the commissioner at last. I make it 8.40. How long should it take us to get down to the inn? Oh, about fifteen minutes. Well, there's no hurry. Dale said he had six men at the house. 
commented Temple after a slight pause. How many are watching the inn? The Commissioner frowned. Uh, now, let me see, he said. There's Foster, Robinson... Oh, about eight or nine, I should say. Good. Is Merritt there? No. Then I think the best plan would be for you and I to enter the inn first, said Temple thoughtfully. Then, if possible, we can also... He stopped to look round at the door, which had suddenly opened. What is it, Price? Oh, there's a lady called to see you, sir. Uh, Mrs. Neddy. I told her you were engaged, but, uh... Mrs. Neddy? Temple was obviously puzzled. Good Lord, he exclaimed suddenly as memory came back to him. That's Steve's landlady. But surely she... At that moment, the very large, very flamboyant figure of Mrs. Neddy appeared in the doorway. She was puffing and blowing with sheer exhaustion, and her eyes were shining with an excitement that partly communicated itself to the two men. She was trying to find breath with which to speak, but the sentences she attempted were all equally unintelligible. At last, after standing still for a moment, Mrs. Neddy was able to speak. You'll have to be excused me bursting in on you like this, Mr. Temple, she started. Her Irish brogue stronger than ever in her agitation. But, uh, Mrs. Neddy did not contain enough breath to complete the sentence. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, she sputtered. And that exhausted. Paul Temple knew better than anyone that he had to use all the patience in the world with the good Irish woman. Anxious as he was to know what had brought her to Bramley Lodge at such an extraordinary hour, he nevertheless remained, outwardly at any rate, perfectly calm. Sit down, Mrs. Neddy, he said gently as he drew a chair up for her and even helped her into it. That's all right, Price, he added to his manservant, who had been looking on at the strange scene with a crestfallen air, ready to apologise as best he could for what he imagined was so unwelcome an intrusion. I'm sorry to be... Mrs. Neddy started as the door closed, and her bosom heaved again as she struggled for enough breath to complete the sentence. I'm sorry to be troubling you, sir, but... but... Again she came to a full stop. Her recent exertion was clearly more than her constitution was able to stand. Her face was still so flushed that Paul Temple felt very serious alarms for the safety of her heart. Well, that's all right, Mrs. Neddy, said Paul Temple, sitting on a chair beside her and trying his best both to smooth over his own impatience and relieve Mrs. Neddy. Just take your time, he added. Thank you, sir, said Mrs. Neddy. Then she breathed out a mighty sigh. Ah, what a relief, she murmured. For a few moments she sat still, growing gradually calmer, her high colour slowly disappearing. Now, Paul Temple started, when he at last felt it was time for Mrs. Neddy to deliver her message. Do you feel any better? Yes, sighed Mrs. Neddy. Yes, much better, thank you, sir. Good, he replied. Well, he asked in a gentle, persuasive voice, what is it you want to see me about? It's... it's about Miss Trent, sir, Mrs. Neddy stuttered some of her excitement returning as she remembered the purpose of her visit. Miss Trent. Paul Temple paused. What about Miss Trent? She's... She's disappeared, sir. Disappeared? repeated Sir Graham, startled in spite of himself. What makes you say that, Mrs. Neddy? asked Paul Temple, still very gently, still concealing from her the increasing perturbation he felt within. Well, it's like this, sir, she began to explain. This morning at about half-past nine, the telephone rang in Miss Trent's flat. I was in the kitchen downstairs at the time, and I could hear it as clear as a bell, as you might say, sir. After a little while, Miss Trent came downstairs. She seemed in rather a hurry and slightly excited. I asked her if she was going out and whether she'd be back for lunch or not, when Miss Trent said that her editor had sent for her and that she would probably be back in about an hour and a half. Mrs. Neddy was very obviously enjoying herself. Now that she had recovered her speech and it could again be uttered without undue effort, she could watch Paul Temple and Sir Graham Forbes hanging on every word. It was not every day that Mrs. Neddy could secure such an audience. 
and she was determined to make the most of it. Paul Temple almost shouted at her in his sheer tearing impatience. Go on, Mrs. Neddy. Well, sir, there's nothing much to tell, really, except that uh, she never came back. And then about a quarter to twelve, the telephone went again. I could hear it all over the blessed house. So after a while, I went upstairs and answered it, and... And, uh, yes, Mrs. Neddy, urged Paul Temple, now more anxious than ever. It was the newspaper office, sir. They said they wanted to speak to Miss Trent. I told them that she'd left the house immediately after they first called her. But, um, but, but, uh... Once again, Mrs. Neddy was being carried away by her emotions. She was now very nearly weeping at the thought of what might have happened to her beloved Steve Trent. Well, the man at the other end said he was the editor and that... And that they never had called her. My God, exclaimed Temple under his breath. I, 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 I didn't know what to do, sir. Mrs. Neddy went on. I, I was in a quandary, as you might say. Then suddenly I remembered all those articles Miss Trent used to write about, uh, you know, send for Paul Temple. And I thought that if I could... Uh... You acted very wisely, Mrs. Neddy, said Temple quietly. And Mrs. Neddy beamed with joy at this flattery. Uh, Temple, exclaimed Sir Graham suddenly. You don't think that the knave... Paul Temple's face was grave. Yes, he replied desperately. And by Timothy, we've no time to lose, Sir Graham. No time to lose... Chapter 20. At the Inn. Paul Temple rang the bell for Price and rushed out into the hall to collect their overcoats. As they came out of the house, the uniformed flying squad officer sitting in the driver's seat pressed the starter, and the two men had barely taken their seats before the tyres of the car were sending a shower of gravel backwards towards the porch. The inn, as fast as you can get there, barked the commissioner, leaning forward to the driver. Uh, very good, sir. In the back, the two men began to talk in low tones. It was a strange and highly irregular conversation. But then, as Sir Graham Forbes explained to the novelist, this whole business is so devilish unprecedented. You know, he pointed out to Paul Temple, we have to appoint somebody as Harvey's successor. Dale hasn't been with us long enough for the job, and there is nobody else who is properly au fait with these uh, extraordinary jewel robberies. Sir Graham paused. He was finding it hard to say exactly what he had in mind. Temple thought he knew what was coming, but not even Temple had guessed all that was in the Commissioner's mind. Chief Constable Purley will be taking over Harvey's duties when this business is over. He's done some very good work at the yard, and we're making him a super. But that won't help us over the present business. Again, the Commissioner paused. I wonder, he went on at last, I wonder if you would care to take an, um, an unofficial sort of appointment. Once again, there was a slight pause before he continued. Naturally, I can't give you any official rank or standing, but personally, I don't see any reason why you yourself should not carry on with what Harvey started. Sir Graham Forbes had been staring straight ahead, watching the car's passage through the country road on the way to the little general. How do you feel about it, Temple? he asked at length. For a moment or two, Paul Temple did not reply. Then at last he said, It's very good of you, Sir Graham. I shall tell Dale, of course, Sir Graham continued. And any orders you have to make, you can give directly through me, or, if you prefer it, through Dale or Merritt. That puts the whole arrangement on a practical footing. Well, it's very good of you to show this confidence in me, Temple replied. I shall certainly do what I can. I think myself the arrangement should work fairly well. The two men fell silent. Temple sat considering his new position. A superintendent without rank or standing. A police chief without police experience, office or salary a detective who had to give his orders through an intermediary. 
Nevertheless, Sir Graham Forbes had given him the highest possible token of his appreciation. They were still thinking over this new arrangement when the brakes shrieked and the car skidded on the loose gravel to a stop outside the inn. Immediately, both men leapt out and hurried up to a figure that loomed out of the darkness. Anything to report, Tanner? asked the Commissioner briskly. Uh, no, sir. Has anyone entered the inn? The Commissioner asked. Not at all, sir. I can't understand it. Paul Temple took the Commissioner by the arm. Come along, Sir Graham, he said quickly. You know the signal, Tanner, added the Commissioner, just in case we need you. Uh, yes, sir. The Commissioner and the novelist strode towards the inn. Temple opened the door to the hall and led the way inside to the bar parlour. The place seems deserted, remarked the Commissioner as he looked around. Yes, agreed Temple after hesitating a moment. I wonder if there's anyone in the back parlour. We'll soon find out, the Commissioner replied. He walked over to the flap in the counter, raised it and walked through. He then opened the door leading to the back room and looked inside. It looks to me as if we're on a wild goose chase, said Temple as the Commissioner came back. Sir Graham made no comment. Where does this door lead to? He asked, suddenly indicating the other door behind the counter. Oh, that leads outside, I think, into a sort of courtyard, Paul Temple explained. You won't find anything out there except pigeons. Well, where the devil is the room you are telling me about? asked the Commissioner. Room 7. Yes, Temple replied slowly. That's what I want to know, Sir Graham. You can't very well be upstairs because of the passage leading from the house, remarked the Commissioner. No, it must be behind this panelling. Temple walked across the room to the wall and started thumping on it with his fist. It sounds solid enough, remarked Sir Graham. Yes, but there's quite a gap between this parlour and the staircase. I reckon that's where the room is. Yes, but how are we going to get into it? There must be, uh, just a minute. Temple suddenly interrupted. What is it? asked the Commissioner after a short pause. I thought I had... Uh... Poor Temple started. Listen, he exclaimed. They could hear sounds from somewhere behind the wall. They were creaks, as if from footboards, then the clear noise of footsteps. There's someone behind the panelling, exclaimed Sir Graham. Yes. Again they listened. Suddenly a knock was heard against the panelling. It was as if some ghostly hand were repeating the endeavours Temple had just been making. That's Dale, exclaimed the Commissioner. Then by Timothy, he's been quick, Temple added. The Commissioner nodded to him. Suddenly he shouted, Is that you, Dale? Clearly, from somewhere behind the wall, they could hear the inspector. Here, where are you? Knock on the wall, Dale, shouted Temple by way of answer. They listened, and once again they heard the thump on the wall. He's over here, I think, said the Commissioner. Together they walked over to the spot which Sir Graham indicated. There must be some way to... Uh... Temple broke off, bewildered by what he saw in front of him. Look, exclaimed Sir Graham Forbes. Look, the panel is moving. It was true. Part of the actual panelling in the wall was slowly swinging backwards. Neither of them could have suspected its possibility, even from their close inspection of the wall. He must have found the switch, remarked Temple, as Chief Inspector Dale appeared through the opening. Hello, Sir Graham, smiled Dale. There's a room in here, sir. It seems, uh... Yes, interrupted Temple. That's what we're looking for. The inspector drew back into the room, followed by Temple and the Commissioner. The top of the panelling was not more than five feet high, and they had to bow their heads as they stepped into the room. I was certainly lucky to find the switch for the panel, Dale remarked. So, this is room seven, said Paul Temple when they were safely inside. Where's the entrance from the house? asked the Commissioner. Through that cupboard, sir, said Inspector Dale, pointing to a large cupboard built into a corner of the room. There's another panel. It leads down to the passage. Well, these people certainly picked a good hideout, remarked Temple. 
Did you find anyone in the house, Dale? he asked. Uh, no, sir, but on the small table in the hall I found this. He took a wallet from his pocket and extracted a piece of pasteboard. It was a playing card, the Knave of Diamonds. There's something on the back, sir, added Dale as Paul Temple looked at the card. My God, he exclaimed as he turned it over to read the message inscribed. What does it say? the commissioner asked. It says, enter Paul Temple, exit Louise Harvey. Exit Louise Harvey, the commissioner slowly repeated. Temple, he exclaimed sharply, we've got to find that girl. Sir Graham, said Dale suddenly. What is it? There's someone in the back parlour, said Dale excitedly. Look, you can see it. Both Temple and Forbes had turned round and walked across to the door to see who it was. Suddenly, Temple recognised the new arrival on the scene. Why, it's Merritt, he exclaimed. Come in, Charles. Good Lord, Paul, exclaimed Merritt, staring with surprise at the open panel. What the devil do you, uh... Then he caught sight of the commissioner and broke off. Sir Graham, he ejaculated. Good evening, sir. Evening, Merritt. What are you doing here? I, uh, came down to see Mr Temple, sir, he explained. His man told me he was at the Little General and, uh... He stopped, then added slowly, Well, it's lucky you're here too, sir. Why, what is it, Merritt? The commissioner asked. I'm afraid I've got bad news, sir. Bad news? It's Radcliffe and Chambers of Malvern, sir. They rang through this evening and, uh... Radcliffe and Chambers, Temple interrupted. You mean the jewellery people? Yes. Merritt, exclaimed the commissioner with sudden alarm. You don't mean... Yes, Sir Graham, Inspector Merritt replied. Twelve thousand pounds worth, he added succinctly. Twelve thousand. Sir Graham whistled with astonishment. Good Lord, Merritt. Why? When did this happen? asked Paul Temple quickly. About six o'clock, Merritt replied. Apparently a man went into his shop and, uh... He suddenly broke off and felt in the breast pocket of his coat. He pulled out an envelope of buff-coloured paper and passed it across to the novelist. Oh, by the way, Paul, he explained, Price asked me to give you this cable. It arrived about five minutes after you left. Good, replied Paul Temple briskly. I've been expecting this. Excuse me, he added. He tore open the telegram and straightened out the thin sheet of paper. At last, he looked up. Interesting news, Sir Graham, he explained. It's from a friend of mine in South Africa. He's attached to the Cape Town Intelligence Department. Well, what does he say? The commissioner asked. He says Sidney Bellman was unmarried, but he had a sister. Who the devil is Sidney Bellman? Asked Sir Graham with some impatience. He was the man who assisted Harvey when he was in South Africa. They worked together over the Simonstown case. Oh, yes replied the Commissioner. I remember. Uh, didn't Miss Trent say he was murdered? He was murdered by the Knave of Diamonds. What does your friend mean by, but he had a sister? inquired Sir Graham. I wonder, replied Temple slowly. I wonder. Suddenly a loud knock was heard on the panel. It was repeated almost instantly. That's from the cupboard, said Dale. One of the men must have come through from the house. Open the panel, Dale, commanded the Commissioner. The inspector walked over to the cupboard, opened the door, and slowly pulled back the panel. Behind it, he saw the tall figure of Sergeant Mowbray. What is it? asked Dale impatiently. I told you to stay at the house. Sorry, sir, Mowbray started, jumping on one side and revealing the presence of yet another visitor. But this lady arrived at the house and insisted on seeing Mr Temple. I thought perhaps, sir... Uh... On hearing his name mentioned, Paul Temple had walked up to the cupboard, and he now caught sight of the unexpected visitor. Miss Parchment, he exclaimed with astonishment. Miss Amelia Victoria Parchment smiled. So, we meet again, Mr Temple, she said. How nice. Chapter 21 
the first penguin. Miss Parchment, exclaimed Sir Graham, with a surprise in his voice that verged on sheer horror. What the devil are you doing here? Miss Parchment was in no way perturbed. Well, she answered brightly, suppose I said, waiting for a bus, Sir Graham, would you believe me? But the Commissioner was in no mood for jesting. Miss Parchment, he answered with all the dignity and severity he could muster, this is no time for flippancy. I warn you that, uh, Sir Graham, please, implored Paul Temple. He turned from the Commissioner to his strange visitor. Miss Parchment, I know why you're here tonight, he said quietly. I know who you are and what you are. There's one question you've got to answer me. Where is Steve Trent? Steve Trent? repeated Miss Parchment with blank surprise. And who, may I ask, is Steve Trent? Her real name is Harvey. Louise Harvey. She is the sister to Superintendent Harvey, the man who... Miss Parchment's tone of flippancy and badinage fell from her like a cloak. She became a more human person, a woman who could be aroused, a woman subject to emotions. Her pose as the retired schoolmistress disappeared completely as she exclaimed with alarm, Good God! You don't mean Harvey had a sister? Yes, said Temple briefly, and she's disappeared. It was Inspector Merritt's turn to be surprised. He was not aware of all the developments in the case and could not understand the purport of his strange conversation with Miss Parchment. Disappeared? He now repeated with open-mouthed surprise. Yes, Charles. Chief Inspector Dale frowned. But when did this happen? he asked. Surely you didn't know anything about it when uh, Steve's landlady arrived with the news shortly after you left for the doctor's house, Dale. Oh, I see. The Commissioner was still feeling irritated with what he considered Miss Parchment's unwarranted intrusion. He considered it clearly a waste of valuable time, and he did not hesitate to demonstrate his impatience. He turned to Sergeant Mowbray. I think you'd better return to the house, Mowbray, he ordered. Uh, very, very good, sir. I'll come along with you, remarked Dale. There's nothing further I can do here, Sir Graham. The little party had returned to the parlour of the inn when Miss Parchment arrived, but the secret panel in the wall had remained open. Inspector Dale now led the way into the mysterious Room 7, followed closely by Sergeant Mowbray. As the rest of the party turned to watch their departure, they saw the panel slowly glide back into position as Dale pressed the button behind the wall. Temple pulled forward one of the inn's not-too-comfortable wooden chairs for Miss Parchment, and she accepted it with a pleasant smile. He himself took another chair, while the Commissioner remained standing still a little irritated by the unexpected turn of events. Mr. Temple, Miss Parchment spoke quietly, but with a note of desperation in her voice, I should like to have a word with you privately, if possible. Well? But Sir Graham was not slow in taking the hint. He turned to Inspector Merritt, who had been hovering rather awkwardly in the background. I, uh, I want to have a word with Turner, he said. So you can come along with me, Merritt. Oh, very good, sir. The two men then walked towards the door, leaving Miss Parchment to her interview with Paul Temple. Just before he went out, the Commissioner paused. Of course, I shall want to see you later, Miss Parchment, he said. Miss Parchment nodded. Thank you, Sir Graham, said Temple. We'll uh, meet later, Paul, Merritt remarked as he joined the Commissioner. Who is that man? asked Miss Parchment as the door closed behind them. Which man? Temple asked. Oh, Inspector Merritt. Uh, why do you ask? I wondered, that's all. Paul Temple hesitated a moment. He was curious to know the purpose of this strange visit. Well, Miss Parchment? he asked at last. Miss Parchment hesitated, then seemed to make up her mind. In her crisp, well-modulated and cultured voice, she started. A little while ago, Mr Temple, you said, I know why you are here tonight. 
I know who you are and what you are. She paused. Is that true, Mr. Temple? Quite true. Then tell me, and please believe me when I say this is important, uh, do the police know who I am? No, Paul Temple replied. No, they don't, Miss Parchment. Miss Parchment sighed. Ah, well, that's a relief. Why are you so anxious to keep your identity a secret from Scotland Yard? I think you know the answer to that question, Mr. Temple. Yes. Yes, I think perhaps I do. Suddenly, with what was almost a cry of despair, he said, Miss Parchment, you've got to help me find Steve Trent. The retired schoolmistress smiled. I'll help you, Mr. Temple. But first tell me, do you know why I'm interested in old English inns? Yes, Temple replied earnestly. Yes, I know, although I must confess I was rather puzzled at first. During the last few days, I've made a great many inquiries about the Cape Town-Simonstown robberies. He paused and went on significantly. I was very interested to learn that the Knave of Diamonds organised and directed his plans from a group of inns all situated in the same area. It was clever of you to assume that he would use the same procedure in this country. Paul Temple smiled. You should have been a detective, Miss Parchment, he added as an afterthought. Miss Parchment smiled too, then immediately afterwards her face turned serious again. Mr Temple, she said. I think the Commissioner intends to detain me on suspicion, especially after my unexpected presence here this evening. If you could persuade him to refrain from doing so, then I think the two of us might quite possibly stand a very good chance of finding Miss Trent. Yes, he answered slowly. I think that could be arranged. There was a slight pause before either of them spoke again. Miss Parchment seemed to be taking stock of her surroundings. At length, she said quietly, Have you heard of the first penguin, Mr Temple? Temple frowned. In spite of its peculiarity, the name sounded vaguely familiar. Isn't it a small, deserted inn on the river about two miles the other side of Evesham? He said. The retired schoolmistress smiled. That's right, Mr Temple. Chapter 22. Ludmilla. Hello. Oh, it's you, Max. No, no, they haven't. No, not even Milton. I'm still waiting for them. Yes. Yes, the girl's here. I say, Max, is everything all right? Yes, yes, of course I'm listening. Salzburg? I see. Yes, I'll tell him. Right. Goodbye. Diana Thornley replaced the telephone receiver. The look of anxiety was still pronounced on her face. It seemed to make her beauty even more striking. She was sitting in a room at the First Penguin. It was an old Tudor building, but not too well preserved. A succession of owners had let it decay until there were very few visitors attracted by its tumble-down exterior. In the summer, a few casual and perspiring cyclists would stop out of curiosity, but the natives of the district all made their nightly pilgrimage to the White Swan, which was about a quarter of a mile away on the same road. The room was sparsely furnished with tables, chairs, an extremely large sideboard, and a dilapidated settee. The inn itself was built directly on the water's edge and even from the inside could be heard the sound of the water lapping against the walls. In front of the first penguin was a neglected garden that a more enterprising proprietor would have turned into a car park. Diana Thornley appeared ill at ease, and judging from the number of times she glanced towards the door, was obviously expecting someone. Finally, she flung herself down on the settee and picked up an early edition of the local paper. Suddenly the door opened, and Diana dropped the paper with a start of astonishment. You're late. It was Dr Milton who appeared. We had a hell of a game with one of the cars, he answered. Where's Dixie and the others? She demanded sharply. They should be here soon. 
Did you get the stuff all right? She continued. Yes, Dr. Milton replied. I say, he added suddenly, what happened about that girl, Steve Trent? She's here. Here, he echoed incredulously. Yes. Well, that's a bit silly, isn't it? It was the chief's orders to bring her back here, Diana Thornley explained. That's all I know. Did you have any trouble with her? At first, she answered with a determined smile. We were nearly picked up in Bond Street. She screamed like hell. Dr. Milton grunted. He looked around the room and suddenly became aware of the bottles and decanters that, together with a siphon and glasses, invited use from the sideboard. "'My gosh!' he exclaimed. "'I could do with a drink. "'No, I'll mix it,' he added, as Diana got up and began to walk over to the sideboard. He poured out a liberal helping of whisky, added a little soda water, and carried the drink back to the armchair he had selected. "'Dixie was very good tonight,' he said. "'He worked like a Trojan.' Diana had been looking thoughtfully at the doctor. "'I'm glad you arrived first, Doc,' she said. I wanted to talk with you. Yes, said Dr. Milton quietly. I wanted to see you too. That's why I came on ahead. The girl glanced at him with a surprised look on her face. Oh, she exclaimed. What did you want to see me about? Dr. Milton hesitated a moment before he spoke. Can't you guess? He queried. No. Again, he paused as though making up his mind. Then I'll tell you, he said with a quizzical smile.